الجزيرة بودكاست There was a time when Bakhmut was one of the best places to be in the whole of the Soviet Union. Bakhmut is part of southeastern Ukraine, one of the richest regions in the USSR because there was a lot of coal mines, so they were the richest and the most glorified Soviet citizens. That's what Mansour Mirobalev has been thinking about as he covers its destruction for Al Jazeera. Today, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says Bakhmut is gone. There is nothing. They destroyed everything. There are no buildings. For almost a year, Bakhmut has been the center of the war between Ukraine and Russia. Now, Russia says it's taken the town. Fortress Bakhmut has fallen. Right now, Bakhmut is, is a smoldering ruin. I think there isn't a single building left intact. It's all just a gigantic graveyard, a rubble of concrete garbage. So will the war in Ukraine hinge on Bakhmut? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Mansur, you have joined us on the show before. We're talking to you about Bakhmut, but you are in Kyiv, which has been the site of off-and-on shelling recently. How are you holding up? Well, there's only been, I guess, 12 shellings uh, this month. Only? Hmm. Russia launched an intense air attack on the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv overnight. All 18- And it's kind of weird to wake up at four in the morning and count uh, 26 loud bangs. But, you know, most of the drones and the cruise missiles are being shot down by uh, American-made uh, Patriot air defense systems. Do you think that the shelling in Kyiv though you said there's only been 12 instances, which still sounds like so many. Does it have anything to do with Bakhmut? Sometimes it does. My understanding is that Putin just uh, waits for a new pile of, of cruise missiles and a new batch of Iranian drones. And then he kind of chooses an occasion. For example, when there was a uh, couple of explosions of drones right over the Kremlin, right over his uh, residence in the Kremlin uh, in early May, they immediately responded with a massive shelling. The reports we're hearing out of Bakhmut now are devastating. All of the buildings have been ruined. We heard Zelensky say that at the G7 summit not too long ago. It's a tragedy, but... For today, Bakhmut is only in our hearts. Before we get into what happened there, tell me a little bit about Bakhmut, where it is, and why it would be strategically important in this war. Bakhmut is in southeastern Ukraine, pretty close to two separatist-controlled People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. And it's a relatively small town of about 70,000 people. Donbass region in Ukraine was an epicenter of coal mining and Soviet propaganda. And then when everything went downhill in the 90s, the region became one of the poorest in, in Ukraine. 
and most of the residents uh, were nostalgic about the Soviet Union. So it's a mixture of uh, a Rust Belt town and a university town. It was just a quiet, nice city with like parks and uh, Soviet concrete buildings. It had a population of 70,000, as you mentioned. But I understand right now it's very hard for reporters to get in or out and to tell us who's left and what's left. What do we know? It's next to impossible to get there right now because recently Ukrainian authorities banned uh, reporters from visiting frontline areas. So it means that only a handful of reporters can be in Bakhmut these days. I mean, could be in Bakhmut uh, couple of weeks ago before it was completely taken over by the Russians. Right. We had been hearing news about Bakhmut for months now. The fighting there began back in August of last year, and it took up until now for Russia to announce they've taken Bakhmut. How important is this in the course of the war? Right now, the important is mostly symbolic. Last year, Bakhmut used to be a very important logistical hub. It was at an intersection of uh, pretty important roads in southeastern Ukraine, but Ukrainian forces rerouted their supply lines. Uh, You know, it was uh, a very slow and a very violent takeover by the Russians. It was a very fierce battle. The defense of the city is looking pretty desperate. Bakhmut. The city, where there are still some 6,000 civilians, has become a cauldron of fire. To seize the city, they resorted to what they call uh, meat marches. Al Jazeera's Charles Stratford saw firsthand how that strategy was destroying the town. Bakhmut is certainly uh, a victim of slow, plodding, determined pace of Russian forces. And as I say, their seemingly indiscriminate destruction within any means possible. He was there just a few months ago, back in January. The center of town is almost completely destroyed. The streets are virtually deserted. The blasts of exploding artillery and rockets is almost constant. That's where he heard how these so-called meat marches work. They're organized by the Russian mercenary company Wagner Group, which led the battle in Bakhmut. Ukrainian soldiers that we spoke to when we were there in January, they were saying that Wagner were using freed prisoners that were fighting for Wagner as cannon fodder, as a means of basically locating Ukrainian positions before more highly trained men went in to target those positions. One Ukrainian soldier named Sergei told Charles about his frustration. They have a lot of manpower, so they send every time their troops like a waves. So we cannot stop every time because we have less guys. And unfortunately, we also lost a lot of guys at this moment. They would uh, release hundreds of ex-cons who would just storm uh, Ukrainian positions for, for hours and hours, and 99% of them would be killed, but uh, the Russians wouldn't uh, give a damn because nobody counts the ex-cons in the Wagner group. Besides this being just such a huge battle that's taken so long, 
one of the things that sets Bakhmut apart is that most of the fighters were mercenaries, part of Russia's Wagner Group. The mercenary force has emerged from the shadows to lead the Russian assault in this part of Ukraine. Why is the Wagner Group so heavily involved in Bakhmut, and what does it tell us about Russia's strategy overall? The importance of the Wagner Group shows how feeble, disorganized, and poorly motivated regular Russian forces are, because the most skilled servicemen were killed a year ago, and the newly mobilized men have been barely trained. They have next to zero experience, and often they even don't have any firearms on them. So the importance of the Wagner Group uh, shows that uh, the Russian military is in absolutely miserable situation. Uh, they boasted the world's second mightiest army after that of the US, but in fact, what we see now is that it's just a, a ragtag bunch of poorly armed, miserable men who do not want to fight a war. And so the war continues. What to expect from Russia and Ukraine after the Battle of Bakhmut? That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast this week, will Recep Tayyip Erdogan win another term? The Turkish leader has got a much-needed endorsement from a nationalist party leader. But will that make a difference in Sunday's crucial runoff vote? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Mansoor, you've covered this war since it began. So I'm curious in your thoughts on what it must feel like for a military and a country to see that a major battle has been won, but not necessarily by that military or by that country. It's by paid soldiers, mercenaries. So you're reporting that now Russian forces will take over the occupation of Bakhmut from Wagner, largely because Wagner lost so many forces. How are they going to regroup? Uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, a very close friend of Vladimir Putin and an ex-con who served nine years in Soviet uh, jails for Mm. assaulting women, Hmm. he said the Wagner Group is beginning to pull out of Bakhmut and that the regular forces would uh, take over. By May 25th, we will do a full review to create the necessary defense lines and hand it over to the military. Russia's Wagner mercenary group says its forces have begun withdrawing from the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. The head of the group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says its positions are being transferred to the Russian army. That is pretty problematic because it's not like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, replacing somebody uh, in an office. It's not like, you know, you hand over your keys, your papers and your passwords to somebody new. This is all happening in real time. Uh, right next to the Ukrainian military, and the Ukrainians control hills uh, right next to Bakhmut, which gives them a, a perfect uh, opportunity to shoot at anyone in sight. You have also heard from officials in the Ukrainian military. What did they tell you? What do they say about Ukraine's strategy now? 
Ukraine is all about the new counteroffensive. Bakhmut is definitely pretty far away from this counteroffensive because the front line is about a thousand kilometers long. And the most important direction for the Ukrainians now is south. They need to uh, bisect the so-called land bridge to Crimea between Russia proper, uh, the separatist republics and the peninsula itself. The 12 mile long road and rail bridge is not only strategically important to the Kremlin as a supply route, it's also a symbol of the Russian annexation of Crimea. If they manage to reach the Sea of Azov, that's where Mariupol is, they would be able to bomb Crimea. They would be able to destroy the so-called Crimean Bridge that links Crimea to mainland Russia. And they will effectively cut off Russian supply lines, turning Crimea into a besieged island. Wow. How does this change Russia's strategy in the war? Russia wants to freeze the war because Putin doesn't want to lose face. It's been almost 15 months after the war began. So freezing the war would mean that he could train more servicemen. He could accumulate more weaponry because uh, he has a very, very dire shortages of uh, advanced microchips that uh, used to come from the West. So Putin wants the war to slow down and uh, Ukraine does not want that. What Ukraine needs now is more action. It wants to be back to the front pages uh, and to the top of the hour news because many Western TV crews have pulled out and uh, Zelensky as a former actor and as a former show business tycoon in Ukraine, he realizes that Ukraine should be in the television sets in the West all the time. But to keep the war on television sets, there have to be soldiers to fight that war. On the ground in Bakhmut, Charles Stratford saw the cost of keeping Ukraine front of mind for the soldiers doing the fighting. In January, it was widely, basically, understood amongst Ukrainian soldiers that uh, the battle had been lost there, but they were just trying to keep Russian forces pinned down. So, in their words, they could kill as many as as, as possible. But yeah, um, one can only imagine that. Uh, yeah, the Ukrainian forces are regrouping now. What kind of effect it's had on morale remains to be seen. Many of the country's most experienced soldiers have died or been wounded in over a year of grinding combat with Russian forces. That means the counteroffensive will also rely on fresh recruits who haven't seen battle. But as I say, the Ukrainians now are far better equipped and arguably trained than they were at the beginning of the Battle of Bakhmut uh, in preparation for this counteroffensive. And I think it's also important to recognize, though, that the longer we wait for this counteroffensive to start, the more time it gives for Russian forces to dig in and defend. So, Mansour, you spoke to some Ukrainian servicemen who, who were tired, who were wounded, who were expressing doubts about their commanders 
um, and being forced to return to defend Bakhmut. Can you talk to me about what they were facing and what they're feeling? Yes, I've spoken to a man in his 40s who have been fighting since 2014. He was wounded many times. He had five contusions. He recently came back to Kiev uh, for a patch up at the hospital, and he also wanted to be present at the baptismal of his son. Uh, he is all shattered. Uh, you know, he his vision is impaired, and uh, you know he's not fit for the front line anymore. But uh, his commanders want him to be back, and his wife is absolutely desperate because. Uh, you know he's been he's been he's been fighting for almost eight years, and she just says, you know, can't they find somebody younger? Can't they find somebody with better health? Because uh, my husband is basically a ruin of a man. You know, Mansoor, so many things could happen at this point in the war. You're still in Ukraine in Kiev. What's the feeling there right now? because warmer weather is setting in, and that's usually when fighting starts getting going. Well, first of all, uh, to Ukrainians, the war didn't begin in February last year. It began in 2014. They kind of got used to it. And uh, in uh, big urban centers like Kiev, uh, sometimes you just uh, realize that, uh, you know, almost nothing reminds you about the war because there are people walking around, uh, you know, wearing shorts and then t-shirts and uh, uh, whining and dining and uh, just talking about uh, daily stuff. But the second you start talking to someone, they say, yeah, my brother's uh, on the front line or my neighbor was killed or, you know, uh, I'm back from the front line. Uh, so the war does affect each and every one here, but the absolutely general uh, feeling among Ukrainians is that uh, their victory is not an if, it's a when. So everybody is absolutely adamantly confident that the victory is going to be theirs. The question is how much blood uh, they will have to spill to win the war. And that's The Take. We'll be back on Tuesday. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Chloe K. Lee, with Nagin Oliai, Ashish Malhotra, Sonia Bagat, David Enders, Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.